This week, how to buy a Jaguar with Borns UK. JECpodcast.com Hello, Wayne Scott with you on another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're very well and you're very welcome along. Lots of interesting information for you on this week's episode. Buyers, guides and tips from Borns UK who have been a long-standing partner of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and have spent many, many years guiding our members through how to avoid the pitfalls of buying a Jaguar. A really good interview, really useful stuff on the way in this episode, so I shall not stand in the way of that any longer, apart from to say that just a few days away from recording this podcast, we have, of course, our big day at Castlecombe Race Circuit on the 5th of October. If you haven't got your tickets yet to go on track and fly round in your Jaguar. Don't worry about it because actually you can come and spectate for free. There'll be trade stands there, opportunities for you to get out on track with some of our passenger rides and also opportunities for you to just share a really exciting day with Jaguar fans. So come along if you're around in the area on the 5th of October at Castle Coombe. You can find out all of the other events the Jaguar Enthusiast Club are currently looking forward to via jc.org.uk and also listed on there you'll find the discount codes to join us at the nec classic motor show the big season ender coming this november all the details you need online also a heads up that we have a really interesting seminar for you coming up as well and we've had him on this podcast a number of times kieran line from scenic car tours he'll be joining pete to give a fantastic seminar on how to take your jaguar touring abroad so one not to miss you can find all the details on how to sign up via jc.org.uk forward slash events buying a jaguar next then after we induct another legend into the hall of fame Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, you cannot talk about the history of Jaguar in motorsport without mentioning the name of this week's Hall of Fame inductee. He was one of the racers that raced alongside famous names. He was one of the racers that raced for Jaguar, for Border Reavers and for Ecuria Cos, the man is Roy Salvadori, and he really is a legend, isn't he, Richard? He is indeed, Wayne, and, and, and this week's you know, focus on him for the Hall of Fame is more of a conversation between you and I, really, because I, I sp- after we spoke about him earlier in the week, I went back and really you know, did my homework on him, and he really is one of the who's who of motor racing, isn't he? You know, Ferrari, Connaught, BRM, Van Wool, Maserati, Cooper, Aston Martin, <laughs> Lola, Jaguar, winning Le Mans with Carroll Shelby. I mean, dear, oh dear, what an incredible career this man has had. Well, he came to mind because I enjoyed the Goodwood Revival like so many people did. And actually, when you look at the list of races in the programme at Goodwood these days, they are, of course, races that were synonymous with the races that happened at Goodwood during the 1950s, that heyday of motorsport that they celebrate there. And you look at them all, the Madgwick Cup, the Lavant Cup, the Chichester Cup, uh, the Glover Trophy... And all of these races are races that Roy Salvadori took part in. Um, most of them, of course, being either TTs or, or uh, sports car races. But he really did actually start his career in Formula One. He arrived in 1952 and it was the start of a glittering career. It was indeed. Of course, he was born back in uh, on the 12th of May in 1922. But 
the Second World War, you know, intervened in, in his racing ambitions. And I think when he actually came to sit in a race car in 1946, he was racing at that time, I think, just for his own enjoyment. And um, they were minor events. He raced in an MG and the next Brooklyn's Riley before he actually got the opportunity to drive an ex-Tazio New Villaria for a mayor in 1947, which, when you think about it, just driving that car that had been in the hands of somebody so talented was a major step up for him. Um, again, he raced... Um, his, his Alfa Romeo really wasn't very reliable, clearly. The car had been passed down to him. But despite this, he, he raced and became a professional racing driver. And he drove through an enormous range of different makes as his career actually moved forward. Um, I think in 1951 at the BRDC um, International Trophy Race at Silverstone, he had that incredible accident, which is out there on Pathé News, you know, where the car rolled two and a half times, well, it actually somersaulted two and a half times and partly ejected him into the hay bales. But he suffered terrible injuries in that accident. And I think I'm actually right in saying he was offered the last rights on a bit of footage out there. He's being interviewed and they said, what do you remember of that day? He said, absolutely nothing. But he said, I do remember waking up in hospital and thinking, you know, how soon can I get back to racing? So he was clearly a man of stronger stuff as well. Uh, that car that he crashed in, a Fraser Nash Le Mans replica, uh, one of those cars of the era where basically the drivers sat on top of them rather than in them. And the idea mm -hmm. of uh, safety and, and protection for the driver was not wearing seatbelts so that it would throw you clear. You know, it's a totally different era here. And actually, you know, Salvadori, fantastic name. It comes from Italian parentage, but he was actually born in Essex. So a UK driver. He had served in the Second World War. And he always felt that that had frustrated his early attempts to get into the sport. He basically spent the Second World War itching and waiting to be allowed out onto track again. And I think that's mm. probably what explains some of his early sort of vigour uh, to, to win those races and to try extra hard. But um, he managed to, of course, uh, recover from that terrible accident and go on to an amazing success because... One of the, if you look at some of those interviews out there and you read the books about Roy Salvadori, one race comes back as his most proud achievement, and that is the 1959 Le Mans win for Aston Martin. Interestingly, just stepping back slightly to your earlier comment there, you, you look at this footage and you consider today the safety that's in sport, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. But, you know, Lewis Hamilton with that tyre mark on his head and being safe thanks to the halo in that recent incident with Verstappen. But, however... You look back to those drivers and you look at the speeds that they were traveling at, sitting on those cars as you actually describe them. And even looking at revivals, some of the historic races there, you see how vulnerable the drivers were. But it didn't diminish in those days. And even now at events like the revival, you see the gusto which with so many of our modern drivers get into those cars and wang them around the tracks. Quite frankly, you know, it takes a great deal of bravery. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't feel particularly comfortable in a car, you know, even on a even on a closed road somewhere without a seatbelt on, it makes me feel quite vulnerable. And you look at those guys and what they achieved, they really were remarkable men, weren't they? They really were. I mean, Salvadori did also manage to have a very uh, well-known and well-documented crash in a Jaguar Mark II at the Alton mm. Park Gold Cup, a competition that still takes place 
to this day in historic motorsport. Um, but yeah, basically, he drove it and plunged it into the lake at Alton Park. So he had That's his right, moments. Yeah, <laughs> Bounced off a tree and into the lake. I do recall that, yeah, <laughs> reading about that. Going back to your comment also, the 59, 24 hours of Le Mans in Justin uh, Martin, of course, took place alongside Carol Shelby, although Shelby at that race was extremely ill. I mean, somewhere it's recorded, I think, that he had about a dysentery. So um, Roy actually ended up doing a great deal of the driving at that victory on his own. And I mean, that in itself is an incredible feat as well, isn't it? It is. And, and actually what you see is Roy Salvadori was one of those racing drivers that just started to think about driver safety. And when you talk about those accidents that he had, it's understandable why. But he just started to think about it in the same way that later drivers would come in and really start to put action into place. People like Jackie Stewart, for example. Um, and he mm. did recognise in himself that actually chasing the likes of Fangio and Moss around places like Dundrod and, you know, <laughs> twisty street circuits was basically suicide. So he sort of carved himself a niche where he was known as the man who would take on the airfield circuits, the likes of Silverstone, those flat English tracks, all of those reused or disused uh, airfields left over from the Second World War. And of course, that mm. gave him this this reputation as kind of a pressing on racing driver. And that's what gave him such success at events like Le Mans. And, of course, driving for uh, people like Ecuria Coss in their Jaguar C-Type as well. Very important part of his career, alongside the great Ian Stewart uh, driving that car. And, of course, later on, by the time he had really honed his craft at Le Mans, uh, he was uh, driving alongside the great Jim Clark in the Border Reavers, Aston Martin DBR1. This Border Reavers team comes up in history all the time. And, of course, it was basically formed around a group of guys who were racing cars and building an industry in the borders of Scotland and synonymous with Jim Clark, of course. And uh, he's known Roy Salvadori as someone that supported Jim Clark in getting to the great places that he ended up getting to. Absolutely. And in fact, you mentioned, you know, his, his skills at Silverstone, Snetterton and the other flat tracks, even Tuxton, you know, being one of them as well. He, he became known, didn't he, as the king of the airfields, effectively, because he had this ability to just, as you say, push on lap after lap after lap on those flatter circuits, where his talents really particularly shone to the fore again. So, I mean, yeah, remarkable individual and somebody who really, you look back at what he actually achieved driving, you know, some of the cars he did, he achieved remarkable things. And Pathé knew some of the old stuff of him there in Mark II Jaguars. Really winding those cars on is really worth a watch. Absolutely. And of course, sticking with the Jaguar theme, Briggs Cunningham drove that famous E2A, mm. which was the prototype for the E-Type. By 1962, he and Roy Salvadori were racing E-Types at Le Mans uh, to great success as well. Uh, they finished fourth mm. overall, but won their class in 1962. And uh, mm. so marks 60 years since that amazing achievement as well next year. It does indeed, but he also partnered great people like John Surtees and challenged people like the great late Innes Island as well, didn't he? So, I mean, when you look... The fact that he was around Clark, he was around Moss, he was around people like Innes Island and the others we've mentioned, it just marked him out as the man of the moment. And I think truthfully there, it was interesting though, wasn't it? He had a period in his career between 1953 and 56 where he retired and he contested 10 races, but he retired from every single one of them. 
with mechanical failures and problems. And it was it was that ability to push through that and then become strong as well. And of course, he t- teammate to Jack Brabham as well. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. He was a bit of a victim of the struggles that Cooper, I think, were having in Formula One at the time. There was an awful lack of money with those teams at that moment in time and whilst Mm. other governments and uh, countries were pumping money into race teams to show off their engineering prowess the UK Mm. government merely just sat back and let motor racing happen and I think ultimately the British mark suffered because of that during this period. Yes indeed I would would agree with you completely I mean but when you look back now he really did He, he shone beyond beyond normal capabilities as a driver and in fact I was lucky enough several times to to dine and chat with Sterling Moss when Sterling used to come out to the Adelaide Grand Prix with his um, friend Richard Berry and we used to sit and have a beer or three you know before the going out in the evenings and he would talk very fondly of Salvadori he had a he had a very soft spot in his heart for him and said on his day you know and on the right circuit he was a very difficult man to challenge which coming from Sterling was obviously a great a great accolade as well absolutely well you get the feeling that he was one of those drivers that kind of fell out of love with motorsport in the end by mm. the end of the 1960s he'd long since retired he had a quick spell managing teams he was brought back a couple of times to manage teams in formula 1 uh, but really, his home through the 1970s was to open up a dealership in Sussex and enjoy a very quiet life away from motorsport, which managed to see him live to the grand old age of 90, um, which for someone who raced the sort of cars he raced on the tracks that he raced on in the period that he raced in, I think, just goes to show how much skill and perhaps luck that his career panned out and gave him. It did, and I think if you look back a couple of years before that, he was he was on the scene of you know a severe accident where uh, he and um, his teammates stopped in the middle of the track. I think it was Christian Hines who at the time H E I N S Christian Hines was uh, it, it, unable to avoid the incident. There was oil on the track, and the, the car was involved in um, you know quite a serious accident. It burst into flames, and Hines unfortunately lost his life. And whilst Salvadori was injured in that. Um, Heinz died instantly and it, it led to him in 1965 thinking do you know what I've, I've probably got through this and it's time to go he had a brief spell with the GT40 program as well in the early days of the GT40 but you're right he walked away he went to Cooper Racing he was there in 66 and 67 and interestingly I, I was trying to find out yesterday and I couldn't I wonder if that was the period when Ron Dennis, you know, a very young Ron Dennis, was was the trainee mechanic, as he was with Coopers. be interesting to find that out for a future chat about things. But he left, as you rightfully say. He retired down to Monaco uh, in the late 60s, and uh, where he lived and enjoyed a, a happy and fruitful life. And I would recommend to any of our listeners doing a little bit of research on him and seeing some of the interviews with him in his later years is actually very, very interesting. And uh, again, as we say every week, a very worthy and welcome uh, recipient of the Hall of Fame title here at the Django Podcast. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. 
Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, it's all about buying cars and all of the pitfalls that you might fall into when you buy a Jaguar and some of the ways that professionals can help you avoid those pitfalls and find the right car for you. And joining me on the podcast to guide us through this complicated subject is one of our Jaguar Enthusiast Club partners, in fact. Uh, from Bournes is Darren Gilling. Hi, Darren. Hi, hi, Wayne. Okay. So, first of all, give us an overview of what you do at Bournes and how you can help someone looking for their ideal car. Okay. Yeah. Well, Bournes, Bournes have been working with JEC for a number of years now. Um, as just one of our partners, we work, we work with uh, various different organisations. You know, with George Brokers and uh, various different people in the industry. One of the most important things we do is we provide what's called a pre-purchase appraisal report. So, for, for instance, you have somebody that lives in Cornwall. They see a Jaguar up in Scotland. Uh, and they think, oh, do, do, what do I do? Do I drive all the way to Scotland and inspect that car myself? Or do I take a chance and rely on the seller's description um, and buy it blind? And unfortunately, uh, a majority of the public, especially in, with, with the major restrictions over the last sort of, 12, 18 months, um, decide to take a chance. And that can sometimes go wrong, very wrong. Um, we've heard of horror stories from people losing deposits because the car didn't exist to cars turning up and being nothing like they were described. And it is a complicated world out there, isn't it, Darren? Because you mentioned, uh, you know, the car didn't exist. Well, if you're looking online at classifieds and, and cars for sale on sites like eBay and, and etc., there are so many scams out there, aren't there? There is, yeah. One of the biggest scams is getting deposits. So what they do is they, they put on these beautiful pictures, they write up this great um, profile on the car, make it out, it's really good, ask you to reserve the car, and they tell you you're going to get your deposit back. Um, you know, someone pays a deposit, say £500, and then all of a sudden the advert and the seller disappears. And it, it was just a whole scam. The whole thing was just manufactured to get that deposit off you. Um that's one case scenario. Another case scenario is, again, like I've just said previously, is the car turns up, you have it transported to your door, and lo and behold, it's nothing like the seller has described. Sometimes sometimes sellers may do it deliberately, uh, you know, just basically tell a load of lies, or, the, or it could just be that in their mind or in their view, the vehicle is something which actually isn't. So what we do as a business is we go out and we take away the emotion because a lot of people buy cars emotionally that they get wrapped up in, in, oh, you know, my dad had one of these or I've always wanted these. And they're ruled by the heart rather than the head. So what we do is we say, well, actually, look, we'll go out, we're independent, we'll go and see this vehicle and we'll inspect this vehicle from top to bottom, inside and out. Uh, using the process we would use as if we were going to buy the car ourselves. We check it out, we drive it, we do history checks on it, we do mileage checks on it, we do HPI checks on it, and we put together an 18-page report. And that report gives the buyer the true reflection on what that car is all about. And also, most importantly, what the value is, because, you know, a number of times we'll go out, we'll look at a vehicle, and actually, it's overpriced. Um, we then revalue it. Um, sometimes the seller may realise that actually he's asking too much, so 
it's a real safety net, especially when you're buying long distance. And lots of people are buying cars uh, long distance now. And we've seen a huge rise in prices, haven't we, within the classic car sector? Values have shot through the roof over the last decade or so. Do you think that's made the market more prone to be a target for scammers? Yes, it definitely, definitely. And, and Jaguar as a mark is really, really commanding good prices now. You know, you just look at the prices of, of good Mark twos. you know, they are just 50, 60, 70 grand. It's a lot of money. You know, it's way beyond the average buyer's um, capacity. But what's also happened and what we found is during COVID, people have had a lot more time to reflect on life as a whole. So, so there are a number of buyers that we've spoken to that say, you know what, life's too short. I think I will go and buy that car in my dreams. I think I will get a second mortgage. I will get a loan, you, you know, because they realize that, you know, life is precious. So they want to go and take the plunge. And again, going back to my first point, so the, their heart rules their head. You know, they're passionate about getting behind the wheel of that car and really, they should be thinking, well, actually, you know, is that car going to be what what I really want it to be? Am I paying too much? And, and you know, am I going to get ripped off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, definitely, definitely true that people buy cars with emotion and can also get swayed by the surroundings as well. This is, of course, why you seem to see auction prices at auctions that are held at motor shows a lot higher than the auctions that are held in a barn in the middle of the week somewhere normally because there's just that that emotion isn't there there's that atmosphere of a motor show that just makes people a little bit more likely to part with their cash yes yes exactly yeah i mean again you know it's like anything the more the more buyers out there the more the more the trade in particular will say well actually you know we can push prices up now because of demand there um you know, if if you think, for example, that the the the, the Jaguar 240 was a bit of an underdog, and it was wasn't it was reasonably cheap um, because people couldn't afford, you know, the 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 higher spec models, and now even they're starting to command really high prices. So, uh, the days of getting something for a couple of hundred quid um, and making it into you know uh, a nice little car are gone. You know, you can even get a restoration project now for under under ten thousand pounds. Not something that's viable anyway. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, as the higher-valued models continue to get more and more valuable, they pull everything else up with them, don't they? And that 240 is a perfect example. You know, 3.8 Mark IIs, they're sort of 60, 70, 80K for the real good ones. So naturally, people start to look at the lower models in the list, even the S-types, of course, which arguably a better car than the Mark II, but uh, for a long time were considered less desirable, they're starting to command huge prices. So um, what have you seen as the big growth areas in value in Jaguars over the last couple of years? Where has the reactivity really been? Well, I personally, I, I see um, the later... The, we have a bit of a shift now because we've got younger generation coming, younger generation growing, growing the enthusiasts. And what's happening now, you get a lot of cars of sort of the 80s and early 90s that are now starting to, you know, really starting to rise the ranks. If you think, for instance, the, the X300 Jaguar, uh, the Sovereign, the 4-litre Sovereign, you know, the straight six model, that you see the price, they're really starting to climb. And then the later XK8, again, they're really starting to climb. And, you know, a couple of years back, 
people didn't want them. You, know, you could get them for five, six, six hundred quid, eight hundred quid. But now, you know, you, a good a good X three hundred sovereign, a really nice one with low mileages, you'll see that you'll see those in dealerships for in excess of ten thousand pound. Unbelievable, unbelievable. But but there are a lot of cars for the money, and and the, the younger the younger generation, and I'm talking about people sort of thirties. Uh, you know, early thirties, early forties, they they want something that they can actually use every day. So they they like they like a car which is going to be great on the motorway, which is going to be quiet, it's going to be safe. Um, so they really are starting to 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 rise ranks. Interesting and great to hear that there is an influx of younger buyers into the classic Jaguar models as well. That's what we like to hear here at the JEC. We like to hear that there are younger people coming into the hobby. Um, I mean, for you, I guess it's about understanding what sort of car someone is after, because we can all go for the shiny concourse examples of models, but sometimes actually... Uh, an owner wants something that's perhaps got a bit of patina or perhaps even is a restoration project. So I suppose there's a lot of learning and understanding about the buyer first as to what it is that they actually want. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I, I, when I get a call from um, a JEC member or or, or from, from another club, they do regularly say, you know, what do you think? You know, do you think this car will do this? You know, this is what I'm, I want to do with the car. And sometimes you'll say to them, well, that particular model really won't suit what the purpose because, in an example, I've got a recent gentleman who um, bought an XJS, and um, it was it's it's a late '80s XJS, and he said, you know, will I be able to use this on a regular basis? I said, yeah, you can. I said, I said, providing you maintain it and you look after it, that's a, that's a perfectly good, usable, everyday car. What he's also got, he's got a, a, a Daimler 250 saloon. Uh, and I and advised him, I said, well, that's great. And that's, you know, that's a good asset and that, and that will grow in value. But you wouldn't use it every day, you know, because it's not really a winter car. You're not going to go out there in, in, you know, in freezing cold weather. It'll take ages to warm up. The heaters aren't that efficient. And sometimes you just have to be honest with people because you, they do. Sometimes they do get disappointed because when you actually lay it bare and say to them, "Well, this is what this car will do," they go, "Oh, I didn't realise that," you know. And then it's had to go for something a bit, a bit more modern, you know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Understand what you want to do with it before you go looking and find the model that suits your aspirations. I guess of of usage. Um, yeah, it's a good, it's a good yeah, tip. So, I mean, you know, there are so many models in the Jaguar range across so many eras. How do you be an expert on them all? Well, no one's an expert on everything, and and you know, I'd be lying if I said I, I think it's through experience. You, 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 the, the more you see, the the more you get to understand. The longer you do it, the more you get to understand. It, it's really just a case of, you know, every car has got characteristics. Every car has got a an area which you look out for. You know, it, it take take for examples the, the later Jaguars. Everybody knows the gearboxes are troublesome. You, you know, um, the, the electrics can play up. Um, some of the corrosion issues, particularly on XKH with front floor flat floor pans, etc., rear wheel arches, seals. You, you know. Every, you, you get to know when you go and look at a car, you go straight to the points. So you know exactly what to look for. It's just purely out of experience. Just, you know, I, I mean, I, I've been involved in classic cars since 1978. 
I've owned in excess of 250 classic cars for a lifetime. I've had loads and loads of Jaguars, all different makes and models. And again, it, it's just it's just decades and decades of experience and 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 just coming across the, the same old pitfalls, the same old problems, um, time after time. You know. So when I send you on your journeys to go and have a look at a car that I'm interested in buying then, Darren, and you get there, what's the first thing you do? You got out of the car, you found the place where presumably this is a private seller has wheeled it out of the garage for you. What's the, where's the first place you look? Well, actually, you know what, right? The first thing I do is I sound the seller out. You learn a lot from the seller. Um, you know, you, you get a feeling, you get a feeling for the seller. So straight away, if you get a feeling that actually the seller is maybe being a bit uh, flexible with the truth, then you tend to be, that puts you on guard to what you tend to think. Okay. And then you, you may ask a few, a few questions. The first thing I would do is look at the bodywork. So the first, as you walk up to the car, the first, the, the, the first real impression you get of that vehicle. So, you know, how straight is it down the side? How good are the lines? How well do the doors and boots shut? Um, the condition of the road wheels, condition of uh, you know the exterior trim. Um, we go right around it. So panel to panel to panel. Check the depths of paint. Have a look along the, the sides. See if there's any uh, poor bodywork, poor paintwork, uh, damaged paintwork, dents, etc. Then you move on to the interior. You go around the interior, you check the things like it's a headline in second, other seats split. Does everything work? Um, then, then what you'll do then is say, right, you go on a road test, get it nice and warm, and give it a thorough road test, normally about 15, 20 minutes road test, bring it back, and then you have a good look around the mechanical side. Now, 99% of the time, you'll have access to a lift, um, and then you'll get it up in the air because once the car is warmed up, you can. Do it check for all sorts you know is it leaking you know is that wet is the transmission dripping is there some problems um with the exhaust um and then you have a look underneath the underside so is it structurally sound any poor welding any bad repairs you know the usual stuff and you just you just you, you take the approach of i'm you take your i put myself in the, in the in the buyer so i think to myself well Okay, I'm going to look at this vehicle in such detail as if I was actually going to pay for this vehicle myself, mm-hmm. um, and that's and that's the approach you take. With the older vehicles, obviously provenance is key to value often. So, how do you go about checking that? Is it a case of leafing through the binders, or is there some sort of pre pre uh, check research that you have to do, or, or how is best to find out about the provenance of a historic car? Well, we we do a mileage check, um, do a mileage data check. We also do the MOT. Obviously, we check the on, on the MOT um, history. We we'll then do a HPI check. We'll we'll also request as much um, documentation from the seller as possible. Check through that. Check invoices. Check logbooks. Check the ownerships. And then what I normally always do. And you know what? It's a real strange one. This it's you can find so much by putting a registration number in in the web. So many cars pop up. So, is for example, uh, you know, quite recently I went to look at uh, look at a vehicle. I put the um, the registration in, into into the web, and it showed it was it was sold at auction um, a few months prior. So that sort of really didn't add up with what the the seller the seller said. Oh, I'd had it a couple of years, but really hadn't. 
you know, it, he'd actually bought it off the auction a few months earlier. So that's the kind of stuff you really, you, you, you just need to spend a bit of time. And then the main thing is also making sure the value's right. So again, looking at comparable vehicles in the marketplace. Uh, and makes because even though the car, the car may be fabulous, but you've still got to advise the buyer if that car is overpriced. So in, in the bottom of the report, in the executive summary, it will also say that I believe the vehicle is, is the current value is X and therefore it's currently for sale but at whatever it is over that value. If you listen to the likes of uh, car, uh, the car buyers that uh, offer you money as a business to take cars off your hands, they'll tell you that the private seller market is one not to be trusted. What's your experience of it? Are, generally speaking out there, sellers honest or have we got a bit of a pandemic in the uk of dishonest selling of of classic cars well no i, I don't think we've got a pandemic i i think that there are many people who who have jumped on the bandwagon of, of doing some up and then selling them and uh, on a regular basis maybe doing one car a week and classifying themselves as a private seller when in fact they're operating as a trade I mean, there's a number of sellers that, the trade sellers that sell, you know, the, the cars are always pictured on a field with the house in the background and stuff like that. Um, the, the, the biggest, most important thing is people need to understand that they are, they are, if you buy long distance, especially from trade, you are covered by the Long Distance Selling Act. So you do have the ability to get your money back or, or, and hand the car back for quite a long time after you purchased it. So... A lot of people don't know that. Um, it's it's not as easy with the private selling market because you, you do have to you do have to rely a lot on on what they tell you, and that again is it, it, risky because you need, you need you don't really know a if a car exists or um, and if you buy long distance, you know you really are taking a chance, especially with cars of quite quite you know quite a lot of value. And it is a market driven by private sales, isn't it? The FBHVC yeah. research that came out in 2020 revealed that only 18% of classic cars change hands through dealerships and auction houses. That's that's a huge majority then that are picked out of the classifieds and people go and see these cars on someone's drive. They are private sales. So, uh, you know, yeah. it is very much a market that's led by person to person, even selling to friends and club members sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 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 I think um, what we're also finding as well is because some of the older Jaguars have got more uh, has got elderly owners. There's a there's a you know there's a lot 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 older vehicles. There's a lot older vehicles going for sale because the the, the elderly owners have got them to just no longer can maintain them. You know, um, we're finding a lot of that as well. So that's why. The, that's why it seems to be that the more the more modern stuff seems to be selling at a higher rate at the moment, and it seems to be changing hands a lot quicker. And that not just not just Jaguar, but especially you know Fords and Vauxhalls, because you've got a younger generation now that's getting into the classic market. Interesting, yeah, interesting that there is a slight cooling off that you see across the auction houses at the moment in much older vehicles, especially pre-war cars as well, and. 
Yeah, interesting to hear your insight there onto why that might be. You know, they are harder ma- to maintain. They're actually a lot less practical to use on the roads. We're lucky Jaguars of the 60s onwards, you can fire them up and travel to the south of France tomorrow, if you like. Yeah, and they you can modify them as well. Yeah, yeah of course. Right. Yeah, pre-war um, cars, much tougher to live with, I think. Well, if you think about a pre-war car, anybody that worked on those cars on a regular basis was no longer here. Anybody who built those cars is no longer here. And, and most people that remember those cars are no longer here. Right? So it, it's very, very difficult. And one of the biggest problems with, with the more vintage stuff is getting somebody to maintain it for you. It's finding somebody with the, you know, with the mechanical knowledge um, of a vintage car. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some really good um, garages throughout the UK that specialize in that stuff. But they're few and far between, and um, you know, it. I, I find I find so many people having to sell their little Austin Seven because he just can't get anybody to do any work on it. You know, it's sad, really, but that, unfortunately, that's just what happens. Mm. Well, it makes uh, bigger heroes out of those that have pre-war cars. I have to say, if someone gave me an SS One Hundred tomorrow, I still wouldn't sell it and wouldn't turn it down i would still love one of those cars <laughs> I to say, i'll deal with the problems i'll get round it somehow <laughs> well you, i think if you, had, if you had one of those you wouldn't mind sending it hundreds of miles to a garage and specializing <laughs> it that's the difference you know true. yeah so, true true um, i mean talking of maintenance actually one of the big changes that we've had in the classic car world over the last five years is of course now the exemption from MOTs. Does that throw a whole other set of challenges at you when you're trying to assess a car's roadworthiness and condition? Well, not really. I, I mean, my view is this: most, most. Uh, okay, there was a bit. There's an argument to say that um, the exemption um, was a dangerous decision by the government and it should be reversed, but. In my opinion, and, and 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 really from my experience, most of these most of these are certainly certainly the cars certainly the cars in the sort of thousands of pounds bracket. They're probably more well maintained than the average the average modern car running around. So you don't come across you don't come across many. Well, I don't anyway personally. Come across many cars that are in such a state they would have never passed an MT. You know, they're normally, normally well-maintained. It's really, really a uh, very small mar- part of the market. You know, obviously, if, if you've got somebody that's that's driving around in, in something from, say, 1979, and, you know, they paid about 800, 900 quid for it, you know, there's a good chance that that, that thing probably never would go for an amity. But you don't really see those. You know, I don't see those because most of the stuff that I inspect is in the thousands. Interesting, interesting point. Of course, obviously, you have been doing this for so long. You remember when lead came out of fuel, and you remember the transition that was there. Do you see the transition we're currently seeing with the introduction of E10? And, you know, we've got E5, but it's not at every petrol station. There are a lot of fears and worries amongst classic car owners about it, rightly or wrongly. Do you see that having an impact on values going forward over the next couple of years? No, I don't actually, because one thing the classic car uh, market is very good at, and that's adapting. And it will adapt. It'll, it'll adapt. It, it adapt last time and it adapt this time. People will learn to deal with it. That they'll, that they'll, that they'll 
um, there'll be new products that, that they'll be able to change the fuel lines. They'll be able to do different bits to work on. I mean, if you remember, everybody everybody got really worried when they you know when they had the the, the change on leaded petrol last time. But then within a couple of years, you know, there was additives, there were devices which 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 would um, convert that. So really, I don't actually think it's a major problem. I think people will just learn learn to adapt, and and the industry will just deal with it. Yeah, we speak as literally a press release has landed on my desk from CMC Classic Motorcars in Bridge North, who have just put on the market all of their conversion kits for E-types and Mark IIs and another XK engine yeah. cars. So there we are. Yeah. We we have the adaption yeah. in place. So uh, that's comforting to hear, of course, because at just at a time when everyone is looking very hard at how the classic car world can survive in the challenges we've got coming up over the next few years and how clubs can continue to support that you know it's interesting to hear your very positive spin on that uh, current issue so excellent news now you've convinced us that if we're going to be buying a jaguar we need your help darren so how do we get in touch and uh what deal do we have as jc members with you Right, okay. Well, um, the, the it's all done. We can you, you can call me, um, and obviously the details are on the JEC website. You can email me. Now we have I work in association with um, Northern Assessors, who are a national group. So we have engineers everywhere. So we cover the whole of the whole of the UK, right down as far as Cornwall, right right to the top of Scotland, including the whole of the whole of Ireland. So we can get out. We can look at cars really quickly. The, the reports are about 18 pages. Um, we our online portal goes live next week, so um, you'll be able to pull your report directly from the portal, which is fantastic. If you and then you know any notes or comments or anything like that can be updated online. All the pictures, and we will in in the coming weeks be able to provide what's called a, a live stream. So whilst we're doing the report, whilst we're with the car, you'll be able to log onto the portal and see the report taking place. Brilliant. Whilst the engine is, which, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Because it gives it gives the buyer interaction. Excellent stuff. That's that's great. And ultimately, I bought a house earlier this year and in order to buy that house and satisfy my lenders that it was the house I said that it was and it was worth what I said that it was I had to go and get an independent surveyor to go and poke around it and give me a long report on whether it was about to fall over it seems crazy that given the values of some Jaguars that we have changing hands within the Jaguar Enthusiast Club that we wouldn't do the same for our classic cars so uh, Darren's able to help us with that through the JEC for all of our club members so get in touch with them the details can be found at jc.org.uk or also links to Darren's email and to his website will be found in the description part of the podcast page at jcpodcast.uk Darren from Bournes UK thanks for joining us thanks a lot Wayne and um, all the best that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included 
in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.